good. on the aftermath and how it impacts your life. If you appreciate diversity of topic and want to come along for the ride, if you're looking for cutting-edge programs, information, resources, inspiring people that assist you in finding your voice, you have come to the right place. This is Donna Argor, a.k.a. Lady Justice, with with my co-host Delilah Jones, president of ImaginePublicity.com, welcoming you today. Thank you for listening and sharing this podcast. So good morning, everyone, and happy Saturday, and it's a nice fall day here in Connecticut, and I hope you are experiencing a good day in your part of the world, too, wherever you happen to be listening to, whether it's live or archived, please do share our show. Um, What I wanted to um, let you know is we have a very special and beloved guest, and it's very rare to have her on live and in person today. But um, I think it's very special because we're, we're marking a milestone year with the uh, Q Center for Missing Persons, of which both Delilah and I are state coordinators. So um, we're very excited to maybe not only reminisce and to tell what's special about the Q Center, but also give people an update in terms of what's going on currently, what might come for the future in terms of the upcoming conference, what what are the needs right now? And, you know, maybe people don't really know what is involved in, in running a nonprofit of this nature and this longevity. So with that, I um, want to say good morning to my good old co-host in uh, Myrtle Beach. Hi, Delilah. How are you? Good morning. I'm great and happy to be here. Um, and very, very happy to, to have Monica Kaysen on with us today. Yes, definitely. Um, so I, I think that, um, with, with all that I had just, um, summarized, uh, we'd like Monica, Monica to maybe start out by giving, um, a, a brief introduction. I know we're, we're familiar with how it all started, but it's a very interesting journey and I'm sure that she has many, um, good, good stories to relate. So with that, uh, without further ado, Monica, good morning, and thank you so much for being with us. It's a pleasure to showcase you today. Oh, good morning, and thanks for having us. It's, it's always important to, you know, get out there and, and be the voice for victims that are left behind, meaning the families of those that remain missing, as well as those of unsolved homicides. So I appreciate the opportunity to be able to get out here and, you know, let everybody know we're still here, we're still moving along, and and we still have a lot of work left to do in this arena. I don't know if it'll ever get done, but, you know, every day we're at least making uh, progress and, and moving forward. So I appreciate the opportunity to be here and, and talk about whatever you guys have slated today. All right. Well, well, it's, it's, it's our pleasure. Um, I suppose for those who uh, were, were trying to introduce the, the Q Center too, in in um, you know a new way, or if they're listening for the first time, um, perhaps you want to give us a thumbnail sketch of of how it began 24 years ago, and then maybe we can do some you know how has it changed over time? There's been so many needs and so many things that you've progressed in. Okay, well um, you know Q was school related. The, the legal name is Community Unite Effort Hyphen Q, and then it's the Center for Missing Persons. Um, it was formed in uh, September 22nd of 1994 to basically be a liaison between law enforcement and families of the missing to actively put professional resources on the ground to actively search for missing people and to be the voice for victims left behind while we strive towards educating communities um, and also bringing forth the national awareness of the problems that exist and, you know, with missing persons and, and the suffering victims. And so, you know, with all that combined together, I feel like over the past 24 years, you know, we started out 
um, basically bringing forth an awareness and educating communities, not only about our organization, but about the cause in general and, and what families go through, putting real victims out in front of our community constantly so people could understand the impact that, you know, exists, if you will, even once a person is found, you know, the struggle is not over. Um, and then over the years, we've, you know, grew to um, educate ourselves as well in what the needs were, um, walking through these cases, you know, with so much on hands, if you will, um, we were able to see the need more than just learning about it in a classroom or just, you know, trying to figure out as a whole, we actually had experience from the pain and the difficulties and the things that people were going through. So there came forth a lot of different uh, programs that exist today, you know, spawning from that, um, that need. And so we have, you know, an educational book that teaches children, you know, it's called Safe and Found. And um, we have many, many programs um, that, you know, educate communities. We've, you know, gone out there and, and showed people how to put, you know, candlelight vigils in communities and, and inspired them as well. Um, different public awareness events from billboards to what have you, promoting missing people, teaching people that it's a campaign, you know, while your loved one's missing, that you have to get out there and continuously campaign for them, which is hard work. Um, you know, and then on top of all that, you know, bringing a safe place for people to come and get educated and be empowered and meet other families so they can share their stories and also be around people alike. Um, that gives strength you know, in a hole right there, you know, when a, when a mother can talk to another mother or father or sibling, um, someone who is going through the exact same emotions and feelings and, and frustrations, it empowers them to, to brainstorm together. It empowers them um, to, to think of, of different things they can do. And then it also gives them a friend, someone to lean on, um, you know, but it also that loneliness feeling that, you know, your, your normal people in your life when someone goes missing, Everyone's there right at the beginning, but then if these cases go long term, you know, soon where your neighbor used to stop and always ask a lot of questions, now they just leave and go in their house. Your best friends want you to move on. Your family thinks that, you know, you're depressed and being held back from living a real life. And But it's just not easy to replace someone that was so, um, that took the space up in your life, and now that space is, is vacant. So then after a while, you feel isolated you become angry and then even resentment can form so try to to put people in place to come and help you through that um and other families are the best antibiotic that you can have for this kind of disease yeah um to your knowledge are you the was q the first or maybe exclusively the First nonprofit to, to really focus on working with the families and and to de-emphasize, you know, as the media emphasizes the perpetrator all the time, to really focus on the victims and the, and services for the family. I think so. When we started many many years ago, everybody was, you know, it was all missing children. No one was focusing on the adults and treating them as they're a child too. Um, you know, in 1994, there were probably two handfuls, if you will, of missing person organizations, mostly just educational, um, mostly just, you know, sending out brochures and they would show up at events and speak or what have you. And they would talk in the realm of statistics. They would talk in the realm of this is how people feel, um, putting, you know, real victims out there, not putting real stories out there, um, not letting all the raw emotion that goes with it. Um, be available to people that need to be affected to get involved. So I, I feel like we may not have been the only one, but I know that I felt very alone when I started uh, focusing on missing adults. Um, you know, I there was no other organizations that banded up at the beginning with us. There were no, you know, everybody was kind of like, you're on your own, fend for yourself. You know, we're running for the grant money kind of thing. And that's how I felt. That was my, that's my opinion on how I felt when it, when it first started. But because we never relied on government funding or grants and what have you, we were able to do more and do what we wanted to help these families. And then from mm -hmm. that, I've seen over the years, many other people kind of taking that, that leg out, you know, wanting to get more on the ground floor, wanting to help victims more, wanting to get the, the voice heard and the stories heard and what have you. Um, and, and I think that helped kind of tilt the, 
the tide, if you will, especially when it comes to missing adults. Then all of a sudden, you know, when grant money came available for turning, oh, we support missing children and adults. But we supported missing persons beginning, you know, at the very beginning. And adults were my concern because they were not getting any kind of attention. And those were the frustrations I was hearing the most. You know, of course, when a child's missing, everybody stops what they're doing. They want to bring a resolve to that because it's a child, they're innocent, so forth. But what they forget is that a mother still looks at her 32-year-old daughter as that six- or seven-year-old child. Um, you know, they, that is their child. And so, you know, that's when we, I think it was 1996 when we birthed the concept of I'm not too old to be a missing child, meaning these adult people are children in the eyes of their parents, and uh, they, they're not too old to be a missing child. So we started drumming that, and today we still you know, have that program to where, you know, we're constantly putting it out on billboards or brochures or, you know, speaking about it in communities and, and supporting the families that are left behind that do have missing adult children. Right. Yeah, well, I think that's an important distinction in um, how, how you've evolved. Um, in the beginning when you were sort of talked into doing this, um, I'm sure you had certain expectations about, um, you know, maybe the first couple of years what you wanted to accomplish. And now, you know, almost a quarter century down the road, uh, can you talk a little bit about what your expectation was in the beginning and what you felt, well, maybe I can accomplish ABC, but now we're that much farther. And what do you think about when you think of the span of time what uh, what you were thinking then and maybe now and with society changing so much, what's possible now and what were your ex compare that with what was your expectation in the beginning? Oh wow, that's a large question. Um It is. I think when I started in the beginning <laughs> Yeah, I think when I started in the beginning I think every I, I thought everyone would care. Um, and, and that was uh, a rude awakening because unless it happens to you, um, it's just like AIDS, cancer, or anything else, unless some, it's affected you, know, you closely by someone you love, most people just go about their day. And then maybe during Christmas they think about the charities they want to you know, participate in or if there's something major going on in the community, I call them you know, show-up day of volunteers. They want to be involved while all the ruckus is going on. But the day-to-day caring the day-to-day promoting missing people and trying to make a difference and a dent in the numbers um that was definitely a struggle and uh but you just keep going and you just keep pushing because believe in what you're doing um and and hard work always pays off one way or another and so every victory that came whether it be small you know whether it be that $25 donation from the furniture company that you would have not been able to get the year before um versus you know, uh, you know, getting four new volunteers, whatever the case might be, we celebrated every victory and we appreciated all the people that helped mold the organization. And with that came educating ourselves because you expose yourself to so many different people and ideas and backgrounds that you're able to get new ideas and refreshment in your process of how can I promote these people? What can I do? What can I do that's different? Because that's the main thing that I've always tried to do. You know, um, back when we started, candlelight vigils were not, you know, uh, a big thing. So we, you know, promoted that. And then every community kind of learned from that, you know, from seeing it on TV, from other organizations, our organization, what have you. And what I found interesting is that we had to continue to keep trying to find a new way to publicize and promote missing people so it would stand out from all the other candlelight vigils you see and so that's what happened it's like constantly trying to stay up on that trying to think of another way whether it be on the back of a phone book whether it be you know mailing out cards to businesses to target areas um balloon releases dove releases i mean i think i've released every kind of animal or object that can be released um (laughs) concerning a missing person i've dedicated flowers you know i've you know, dedicated stuff in oceans, I've, you know, off of piers, off of bridges. I mean, it, it's crazy to see over the years, you know, how far and, and how um, extravagant, if you will, sometimes you have to be to promote these people to get that headline story. I had a reporter sit 
on a on a guardrail years ago while we were doing a search and it was like nineteen ninety five or ninety six for, for a missing girl and and I remember that reporter saying, you know, you know how certain companies come to uh disasters, if you will, and you kind of know who's there right off the bat by either their signage or, or uniforms or whatever. And he said, you know, but, but you guys are out there just as much, but you keep getting referred to as a group of volunteers or this or that. He's like, you need to promote and get your name out there. So not only people know you're there and you're working and earning that donation, but that also people know who to call. And I remember that conversation. And I, so I, I took that word of advice. And over the years, many, many more advice like that from different professionals or people that have come along my path, and I've implemented that in trying to help the organization grow. Now, mind you, not wanting to be so large that you forget the purpose or the uh, um, objective and, and that you can be a part of the ground floor experience, but large enough to make an impact and to do the right thing um, all the time for these people. And that's really all we just continue to do, and, you know, Again, as you experience more professional people or different circumstances, if you will, it helps kind of bring forth new ideas and new approaches and, and new ways to get, you know, information out there. And for instance, you have social media now, you have you know, blog talk radios, you've got so many more things that you didn't have even 10 years ago. Um, when DNA first came out, I remember promoting that continuously, you know, promoting FBI and their DNA process and just at every event, you know, educating law enforcement I was encountering. It's, it's all about, you know, you're going to get more done on the ground floor because you're directly in front of those people and you're directly in front of the audience that needs to be educated. Um, and so I've always felt like that the ground floor approach has always been the best. You have those meaningful conversations. You have those lifelong impressions that you leave with people. And, it, and it, they can remember more than just a business meeting in a corporation on the 10th floor. Right, and I think what you're saying is that everybody has to have, you had to do branding, and now everybody knows Q from their identity and your reputation, your good reputation with law enforcement, et cetera. And, Monica, as you were talking, I was thinking that um, when you were saying we, we constantly need innovative ideas to get out there and to do things and share um isn't that how um, the Road to Remember Tour evolved as a result of uh, Leah Toby Roberts and all? I mean, nobody, nobody has done that. And perhaps you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, well, it's a constant every day. And I just want to remind people, when you're in a nonprofit, it's a constant proving yourself every day. You just can't set the ground rules and, and then just be done and expect everybody, you know, law enforcement, media, you know, city officials, everybody, there's constantly a turnover. So you're constantly re-educating people. You've got to constantly keep, you know, on your toes with that matter. So it never stops. It's always mm -hmm. hard work to get your message and information out there. Um, with the road tour was just an example, <coughs> excuse me, of that we had to take this to get some attention because with Leah Roberts' case, who was the inspiration of that, you know, she was uh, missing from Durham, North Carolina, and days later her vehicle was found in Bellingham, Washington, abandoned, you know, on the side of a mountain where obviously it had been in, in some kind of wreck, um, end over end, if you will, and she's missing. And, you know, her family has to travel all the way over there. Their both parents were deceased, so it left this brother and sister, you know, kind of trying to find their, their sister on their own, if you will. You know, we got involved in... We could not get anyone to, if you will, own the case because she had left the note and paid rent and, and things of that sort when she left North Carolina and she was going on this cross-country trip. And then there was never no proof that she actually made it to Washington, only the vehicle was there. So it was like nobody really wanted to own it. And then finally, you know, Washington stepped up and, and uh, you know, took on the case and they've done an excellent job. But in the meantime, you know, how do we tell people that she's missing and that we need information for, you know, thousands of miles in between. Who saw her? You know, where did she stop? What did she do? So forth, so on. So, you know, I came up with an idea with a few others. And I said, why don't we just take a road tour and we'll sit down with investigators. We'll get all the, the uh, data from, you know, her credit cards. Because, she, put, you know, thank God she used a lot of her credit cards, you know, in her travel. Because, again, she wasn't running or anything. She was just on a trip. And so... We were able to establish a route of what she took. 
and how many days that encountered in that route, if you will, while she went on this cross-country trip. And so we set out. I remember we were so – had no funding. You know, we just had this great idea. So <laughs> we put, you know, our money up and rented a vehicle um, to make sure it could make it that far across country. And then we could only afford one banner. So we, we rode in the right side lane so that one banner would be seen <laughs> of all passer cars. We hated to get out of that lane because we had nothing on the other side. So that's how small, if you will, the road course started. And we laugh about it now, but it, we were serious about it. And we spent all of our money in these um, packets, which the family helped as well. Um, you know, printing up these really nice, colorful packets. We printed up thousands of posters. And we literally just, I mean, every exit, we were stopping, flashing it, talking to people, handing out information. You know, if we saw a media truck on the side of the road, we'd go to the media outlets that were right along the path of the highway. Um, you know, and just, you know, she stopped and got a tire fixed. We stopped there and talked to people. I mean, we just really just spent days doing that until we got to Bellingham, Washington. And then we kind of had a press conference and, you know, and, and just let everybody know in the past, you know, we're seeking this information. There is no national news for Leah. Nobody's, you know, she's not in the day, you know, day-to-day cycle of, hey, we need to garner this information. I feel like if she'd have had it on the onset, maybe things would have come out differently. I don't know. But mm-hmm. we gave that presence and started that campaign on the Internet and got law enforcement, you know, more involved and and, and most importantly, the family felt like at least someone cared. Somebody was trying to make a, a difference. And our whole thing was to, you know, get some kind of national attention, which we did. We garnered uh, People Magazine, you know, from that and from our efforts. And, uh, you know, and, and I felt like a lot of information, you know, started coming in. And that's really where her case, people were like, oh, okay, this girl's missing. And unfortunately, she remains missing. Um, this mountain is, is just huge. Um, you know, we don't know if side of the mountain and, you know, and, and, and you can't even see to the bottom. I mean, that's how high up you're, you're talking. Um, and, and there's been a search team out there that has done multiple searches, but have not been able to find anything, but there's so many wild animals and so many large animals. Um, or if she, you know, was just injured and waited till daylight and walked out and then, you know, either had a head injury and, you know, is living homeless or living with someone and has no clue, or, you know, she became a victim at that point to a pacifier. So there's, you know, three different scenarios of what could happen. I, I firmly believe um, in my heart that, you know, nothing would surprise me in this case. Um, there's no evidence of her being alive. There's no evidence of her being deceased. So we just remain to continue to do the road tour because when we got back, I mean, we were calling in radio stations. They were calling us. By the time we got to Washington, we had people from, like, North Dakota and New York calling, hey, can you come through our town? So instead of going back the same route, we took off and went all the way. We went through 26 states in two weeks and stopping and talking to families and getting their message out. We came all the way up through North Dakota. We came all the way over through Michigan and all of that out through New York and back. So we literally went the whole around. (laughs) Um, the wow. United States, if you will, the 26 states, Outer Banks, if you will. And and when we got back, I remember going checking our mail after a couple of days of rest. And, and the ladies, you know, there was a key in our box. And I went up to the desk and I said, what do I do with this key? And she goes, well, there's some boxes for of mail. And I, I thought like a box, someone's in a box. So I opened it up and there's like these bins um, of mail. And then the lady came out with like a push cart with a couple more. And I'm like, oh. <sighs> MG. And so I load them in the car. I get home and I start calling people. I said, I need help reading all these letters. So a bunch of people came over. My living room floor was very simple. I cooked some food and we sat there for hours going through, reading letters, discussing them out loud and started putting them in piles, you know, women, men, law enforcement requests, family requests, you know, all this kind of stuff. And and there was over 800 cases came in saying, come to our town next year come to our town next year and I sat there it probably for the next three months you know and with other people helping me returning calls you know calling these people and saying you know we've got your letter you know trying to have that personal touch and you know let's see what we can do and hearing their stories and whatnot and and that's really when the the road tour was born it was a reporter that I had talked to out of Wilmington at the time she's no longer here in Wilmington 
Um, and she said, you know, on the road for, for Leah Roberts, you know, to remember Leah Roberts. And then after the first year and with all those letters and all these requests and we saw there was really a need, we just continued it on the road to remember. And with, you know, telling Leah's story every time and then adding, you know, 100 plus cases and that route determines what cases, you know, we're doing each year. So the route changes every year and it's worked. I mean, it's a simple concept but it's a great uh, media outsource for a lot of these cold cases or cases that have never been heard of. And uh, we continue to do it. We're, that's, that's how that was born. And wow. A lot of work that goes well, into that what? thing now. It's grown. Yeah, good. <laughs> well, no, it's, everything that you've just said brings me down to the volunteers. You know, you're talking about all the people that came and sat in your living room floor, but I know you have thousands of volunteers all across the country. Um, Unfortunately, you're the one that has to direct them all and keep them everything right. corralled. <laughs> so maybe you want to go Our over job. some. Corral is a good word. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the scope of the operations, I know, and then maybe go into what type of qualifications and things that you look for in a volunteer, no matter what they may come to the table with. Um, what is it that you are looking for in, in a volunteer and how can just ordinary people like me, I came to you with yeah. no knowledge of this. Mm-hmm. Um, how can we help you? Mm-hmm. Well, what I look for in volunteers and you can pretty much always, you know, <clears throat> see where a volunteer is going in the first year of interacting with them. But I, I look for, you know, loyalty to the cause, loyalty to the families, like, you know, if I'm going to spend time and everybody else is going to spend time pouring their knowledge and training and, and support in you, then we hope to get that back, you know, when, when another new person comes in kind of thing. So I look for that loyalty. I look for that loyalty to the families and to the cause as a whole. But most, you know, just a heart, having a heart, you know, wanting to do something for someone other than yourself, um, wanting to go home at night and say, you know, I might have not done much today, but I've talked to one family. I volunteered at one event, 300 cases, whatever it is, I did something no one else did today, and I feel good about that. And that's the type of person I'm looking for. Um, you know, you, you encounter so many different types of people, and I would say a good 85%, 90% of people I encounter, you know, they have a true heart. They have a true calling. They, they just need an opportunity for someone to accept them and, and train them or come in and, and help them. Then you, you know, you have some negativities. You have some people that are what I call the show and shine. They like to, you know, be the center of attention and things like that. They like to be involved when things are happening. They don't want to be involved in the real work. They just want to be involved when, the, you, know, you know, people are out there and can see what they're doing. And that's okay, too. There's a time and place for those type of volunteers as well. But, you know, you just try to find out who people are. And you'll be surprised in some of my darkest hours and some of my best hours and some of my most confusing times, you know, I've had a conversation with a volunteer or encountered a volunteer that really inspired me or that gave me more um, oops that day that I needed, that gave me that extra encouragement or that was just that voice of reason. And Lord knows I need the people with reason because, you know, a lot of times I get, you know, hung up on my passion for the cause. Sometimes I don't see that the roadblocks need to be patiently removed. I just want to kind of kick them through. And so those voices of reason or those solid people that God continues to put in my life, I think helps keep me, you know, on the path and not straying too far. Um, mm-hmm. Because, you know, I, I believe in what we're doing. And, and I look at every case. I just had this conversation the other day with a volunteer that was telling me it's so hard to go to search after search after search and not find someone. And I said, you have to look at it as that you've eliminated space and that one, you know, piece of woods that we searched, we may not found her son. However, she can now drive by there and go to work and know he's not there because for the past six months, that's all that was on her mind. So although we've still not found that person, you've given that family great relief um, and something to hold on to. So every search has to be successful. It's the way you view it. You know, eventually, if you're eventually going to get to the spot that they are, and those days are so rewarding, it'll carry you through the next year of finding no one, which that doesn't happen, but I'm just saying, 
Um, you know, so you have to you have to uh, brace yourself. You have to to know um, that it is going to be a long haul, and it's about instilling hope in these people, and it's about letting them know you're there, and you're going to take that journey with them. It's not all about let's let's get out there and find the kid, and everybody's a hero, and I can go and talk about it for three weeks at my at my work. It's not about that. It's about being there long haul for these families and for the cause and for the support that they need that people don't realize because they're not meeting the families. They're just volunteering two or three days of their time to go out and walk to, you know, an area or whatever. It's different. And so I tell people all the time, it's how far and deep and far that you want to go. I will educate you because I'm not always going to be as young and we need to continue to inspire people for this cause. Because it is a problem, and it's one that goes probably most unrecognized. Um, there are just so many people. While we're on this podcast right now, there there's somebody, if not more than somebody, a lot of people that are going to a police station somewhere in the United States, somewhere around this country, reporting their loved one missing. And just think about that. You know, while we're talking about it, there are people there just beginning their journey. It's imperative to have people in place to help them if that journey takes on its own length of time, if you will. Not everybody gets that five or six days or that one month. It, it just doesn't happen. Right. Well, um, with regard to the different um, kinds of opportunities that you may have and, and volunteer, I mean, I think it's important to tell people that you're very flexible in terms of identifying individual talents and What's, what's maybe the array of things, the examples of contributions that they can make as a volunteer? Well, I ha- you know, I run into all kinds. Like, I would love to volunteer, but I'm in a wheelchair. I would love to volunteer, but I only have the movie Not on my excuse. hand. I would love to volunteer, <laughs> um, you know, but I, I had back surgery, and I can't walk that great distance. There's something for everyone. And, you know, if you can't walk, that's fine. You can pick up a phone and be supportive of a family and call the family, you can file paperwork, um, you can work on the computer, you know, you can, you can be a promoter on the internet, you know, there's so many other ways to contribute, you know, financial contribution is imperative, because, you know, we pay for the professional resources that go around searching, you know, for all these individuals, Um, but, you know, it's most important that, you know, even if you can't donate financially, you may know someone who can. So it's always about getting other people involved, getting people to, to look at the cause, getting to be a part of the cause. Some people just want to donate and don't want to get in the ground floor things, and that's okay too. That's the way they can contribute. Everybody has a way they can help. And, but the most, make that attempt. Take baby steps, you know, learn about the cause, why you take baby steps into it. You may find, and that's the one thing I always say, once you're involved in the cause, you're going to see something and you're like, wow, I could do that better or I know a better way or, you know, my husband's a police officer and he might be interested in that, whatever it is. Um, But you're never going to know until you make the steps to get involved. And that's one of the biggest, I think, in anything, whether it's a career change, volunteering with the organization or whatever, I think you have to make the decision. I'm going to get involved. I'll take it baby steps. I'll, you know, get get as much involved as I can. Don't walk in thinking you can save the world overnight because you can't. Um, but you can sure make a difference to feel like you are saving the world. And that, that's the difference. Yeah, definitely. I think we all, we all try to find our niche. And um, um, what, what do you um, – what can you say in terms of maybe major accomplishments over time that you're, you're most proud of that you've seen in terms of – the missing persons community that you may have, you know, you've definitely had a hand in changing. And I know we, we alluded to it earlier about, you know, the fact that you're focusing on um, helping helping families and um, adult missing. But are there certain milestones that you can remember that, you know, we didn't have this up until this point, and because we've worked so hard over these years, this is what's happening now. Are there particular milestones? Oh, my goodness. Um, there's so many milestones. There's probably too many that I can, you know, just in a few minutes try to think about. But I know when we started, um, 
I think one of the biggest things is CODIS. Um, and that only stands out, and that's in a daily operation because of the fact that I remember back in the day whenever we would find an unidentified person mm-hmm. um, that we really thought was another person, you know, one of our missing or someone missing, um, you would have to go through so much to get law enforcement to look at it. Then there was a funding issue. Well, who's going to pay for the DNA testing? I mean, we've even made donations to law enforcement in the past, you know, over the years to private organizations, just whatever, even to families, you know, to get the DNA testing done over the years. And I remember when CODIS came in and they said, oh, this is going to be free to families of the missing. I about fell out and I did everything in my power. Every time I spoke to someone, every brochure that I could make, every flyer that I could put out, no matter where I was, I was telling people about this. And, and educating, you would be surprised in probably the, the 90s and even up until 2002, 2003, there were still law enforcement agencies and people that just had no clue of what CODIS was. And it really kind of sparked in like the, started to really get into the arena in 2002. And then by 05, it really started to take off. And then, of course, later in the 2000s, you know, people really started, it became, started becoming a household thing. And now, you know, families are educated all across the world. They don't even need to be told by their law enforcement or what have you, you know, DNA is a big factor. Um, and I think, you know, it's just, it's amazing what the FBI did with that. You know, they had sex offenders and, and, you know, violent crimes and whatnot. And then they, you know, decided one year to write a grant um, and include missing persons, see if they could, you know, identify some people or what have you. And mm-hmm. it was such a success. It's been going strong every day um, since. So I think that was one of the biggest, you know, the Amber Alert being signed in. I think that was another huge step, um, you know, and the Silver Alert being signed in years later. Same thing. I think that was a huge step because we were trying to push, you know, getting alerts out there for the elderly way before the Silver Alert ever, you know, opened up. And, uh, you know, just trying to educate people. There's just not children that are being abducted or getting lost or, or, you know, what have you. And we can save these people. We can just let people know they're missing, you know, give people an opportunity to help. And so all of those things I think are huge milestones. Um, And I think just the education level now, communities have sat back and watched on the news by groups like me getting out there and campaigning through the media and, and partnerships with the media and educating communities, even the ones we don't live in or the ones we're not in because of, of, you know, being able to travel through Internet and, and stories and what have you. It has inspired other communities to step up and say, hey, we're going to do this event. We're going to help. This is our, you know, this is one of us that are missing and, and taking on the, the pressure of the missing person, too. And I think that helps. You know, so I've seen a lot of great things that have happened over the years. You know, we have fingerprints that are way better now that are all computerized you know you have uh you know just a national data bank now that you know for this unidentified getting all these unidentified people into the system as well which is solving cases so you know there's a lot we have a long way to go you know it's i don't know if it's ever going to be perfect um but you know we're definitely at a way better place than we were even five ten years ago yeah well those those are definitely some huge advancements and um you know we're so glad to know that you you really have forged the way and had a hand in it um but with regard um, sort of on the other side of that in terms of needs do you think that the needs that you identified back in 1994 the basic needs are still the same for for the families and the victims or are you seeing because we're we're communicating in a whole different way are, are there are there needs now that before maybe you didn't have to worry about or your your priorities are are somewhat changed over time, Monica? Oh, um, well, I think our priorities continuously have to change in cases. And, and, you know, every case is unique. Every case has its own needs. And so there is no A to Z black and white book that's out there. The guy right away and no you know, that you can solve this case and find this, you know, just getting a message out to the street and have this person be found, you know, where other cases, you know, have all the indicators that something's wrong right off the bat. So every approach to a case is different, but the one thing you will find same is the worry and the destruction 
and the path that it leaves behind in the family. So I think that, you know, probably the one thing that hasn't changed and that we've changed in our approach, but is the pain level these families go through, um, the suffering, the frustration, the feeling no one cares, the world keeps turning, um, law enforcement's not doing enough, law enforcement's okay, this person told me this, this person told me that, you know, um, the, you know, the scammers, the, you know, all these types of things, um, you know, or, or daily battles. They were daily battles back then. The one thing that we can't do now is protect the families like we used to. Before, in the early 90s, um, people that a psychic or anybody else that wanted to, to touch a family, if you will, or reach out, would have to come through us or law enforcement or whatever agency was handling the case. And you could stop all that additional pain or suffering the families had to go through. You could head that off and protect your families, if you will. Um, and over the years, as, you know, the Internet and social media took flight, you can't do that anymore. Now they can reach out straight to the family. Now they can reach out straight to the victims that are left behind, and you can't do that plus them. So the one thing I've seen in, in the past five or six years that have really risen is the access to families. And, you know, some of it's good, but a lot of it's not. And, and so you're dealing with new problems that occur that, you know, writing a search plan and trying to do the day-to-day, try to find this person. Now you've got to deal with, you know, some schmo who's contacted the mom at 2 o'clock in the morning, found out her phone number through her Facebook or whatever, and or internet site, if you will, and then call them and say, hey, I, you know, give me some money. I know where your loved one is kind of thing. Or, you know, next thing you know, you've got a mom or dad driving to some cafe in Arizona by themselves without telling anyone because they're so desperate thinking this person is legit. Um, and you, you want to just scream, you know, because now you, you can have another missing person. Um, and we even had a man that put out on social media um, last year that his phone was missing um, and he had a reward and somebody called him, you know, and he's like, well, I'll be right back. You know, I'll be back for dinner. And he goes out thinking, you know, these people, you know, found his phone and he's going to give him like 50 bucks. And next thing you know, he becomes a missing person, a homicide victim because they thought um, he had money, uh, you know? So there's, there's all these new dangers yeah. that you have to worry about. So you have to think numbering cases and people reporting. It's hard to keep up with your family. Um, and be able to be that buffer and kind of, you know, day-to-day contact them or, you know, once a week and say, hey, you know, or, you know, so I try to establish early on and, you know, if anyone contacts you or whatever, you feel questionable about it, whatever, just call or text me and ask me. I would be glad to check the person out and make sure they're legit because the one thing I have found out, when people reach out to you, I don't care what it's about, um, when it's concerning a missing person, whatever the reason is they're reaching out to you, normally is not there's something they're wanting from you and it's not real help because good people and great services are not going to have time to scour the internet and look out and say, I want to help you. You know, it's going to come by word of mouth. It's going to come by you doing your own research. So I encourage families, you know, do your own research, you know, watch for the red flag. You know, it's just like in this hurricane, we've gotten buffers every day, um, informational things texted to our phone, you know, so forth, you know, if people come knocking on your door saying, I'll fix your roof or whatever, you know, be leery of that. There's professional companies, the city endorsed. do your research. It's the same thing with missing people. You know, if you've got private investigators or psychics or organizations calling you and, you know, breaking their arm to, to reach out to you, the question is why? And then the second question should be, what can you really do for me? Because mm-hmm. you need to have a real service. You know, sharing a poster is great on the Internet. But if that's all you're going to get from 20 different organizations, at some point you've got to sit back and say, I need some real help because you can share your own information. Let's and I think that's to, what makes a difference. I, I would, ahead, I would before we run out of time, I, one thing I would really like to have you speak to is your search teams and your canine teams because in mm-hmm. this is kind of the backbone of what you do. Um, Kind of talk about them and, and what types of search teams you've put together, um, the qualifications that are needed to be on that search team, and, and obviously the sacrifices that these volunteers make to 
go across the country and search for missing loved ones? Well, we're always accepting new volunteers, and we, you know, and what we need is a willingness and a, and a heart. And what, you know, and and on our volunteer forms, it asks, you know, how far you can travel, this, that, and the third. Um, but with the volunteers, over time, we offer them continuous training and knowledge, um, and then ways to get certified. You know, we help them and guide them along for for growth in that first year. I always tell people, come out and volunteer for at least one year on the search. And then if you're serious about it and see the dedication and hard work and that it's all not just what you see on TV, um, then, you know, we'll, we'll put in the time to get you to the, to the area that you need to get to to be certified. Um, but prior to that, you'll be under certified people and you'll, you'll meet a lot of different people and everyone has a different story. You'll have, you, you may meet one mother who still has a missing child that decided to take up the cause and, you know, and train her and, and get her canine trained and, and whatnot and is out there searching. You'll have someone else who has a recovered person. You'll have a business owner. You'll have all different stories of why people believe in what they're doing and knowing it makes the difference. Say, no matter what you do in the world of a missing person, at the end of the day, it's all about getting to the area to search. All your promotion, all your public awareness, all your speaking, whatever you're doing, has to bring you to an area to search because this person is lost and they need to be found. And it's a simple concept, and I think a lot of people lose that. So everything you do in every case needs to be promoting information, tips, awareness, so communities, people will talk to law enforcement to get that information in, so things can be pieced together to get to that area to search. And, and leave it an open door for promotion of tips and things to get to that area to search. Um, and, uh, you know, when it comes to volunteers, we want everyone to, you know, whether you have an ATV, a boat, you know, whether you want to do a canine, whether you have a canine, whatever it is, ground support, um, you know, every sector, of course, every sector is um, appreciated and needed. And it's always going to be needed in whatever, because there's always searches going on. I mean, we've got searches going on every week. They're just not all over the Internet and just stuff, you know. And so, you know, we've got technology, experts in this, experts in that. Um, so, and then with the conference and, and other trainings throughout the year, our canine seminar is coming up next, you know, in, in November. There's all kinds of ways to be trained, educate yourself, opportunities to move further and to get certified and become better at what you do to be able to help families. But there's a lot of time that's put into it and a lot of commitment um, because you want the best of the best out there looking for your loved ones. And I, I look at everything to be my loved one and I want everybody as dedicated as I am or as knowledgeable as I am. I want them out there with me. And so, you know, if, it's something we've learned over the years and something we continue um, major growth in is educating our volunteers and teaching them about all the different scenarios and the different, you know, and then just being a part of it, seeing how people are found. And, and it's the one place everybody said, oh, they won't be there, and then they were. And, you know, it's being involved in all that. <clears throat> but it's definitely yeah. an on-hand learning project. It's nothing you're going to learn in an eight-hour class. I can guarantee you that. And people shouldn't be, um, shouldn't think that, oh, well, I don't have enough training, so I can't really do that. I mean, you can start out by going and ordering food for people and then getting, getting into it in that way. There's always something a volunteer can do, right, even in the search. Absolutely. Um, I even had a guy who had threats, and, you know, on a good day, he was really pretty reasonable, and, you know, but he was an awesome photographer. He would capture um, some of the most telling pictures, if you will. And I remember early on in our organization, you know, people are like, I can't believe you're letting him come out here. You know, and I'm like, look, there has to be a place for everyone. And even mm-hmm. though, you know, he'd have his little spouse off, especially if I'd get upset, you know, he'd say everything I wanted to. Um, but he was amazing in some of the photographs that he would capture, which taught me from him, a person who was mentally ill and had Tourette's, I learned from him that capturing those moments were important because that picture told a story too. And you could put that out on your website and affect people to get involved. Right. So, you know, just even in that, I was educated that it's important to have that telling picture. 
because whether it's on a brochure, whether it's on a website, whether someone sees it, that mother or somebody can look at that pain in that family's eye or that moment that's captured and say, oh, my God, I feel that, you know, and that's, that's getting another volunteer involved. You've affected someone. So Absolutely, one person at a time. Yep, everybody has a place, and, you know, it's our job, the ones that are trained, to continue to mentor these people and get them involved and help them get trained um, and, and try to keep it as cost-effective. A lot of training is free, um, but, you know, some things are going to cost, and it's, it's all about, you know, what you want and how far you want to go um, and, and how much you want to know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Definitely. Um, Monica, are you able to tell us at this point in time, I know you've released a little bit of the general information with regard to the upcoming, uh, you mentioned about the conference in March. Are you able to give us any tidbits about that? Well, we're still in the planning process, um, but, you know, we do have our dates, which, you know, I put the save the date out the other day and we'll continue to get that out. Um, normally we pick our theme in October, um, or looking at it in September, October. So um, what we're doing now is trying to figure out if we're going to still be able to have that meeting. We were not able to have a September meeting um, with our board of directors just due to the fact that the hurricane came and people are still rebuilding and we still are incurring flooding in the southeastern region. So Mm -hmm. at that point, you know, we're trying to figure out a date to get back together, get back on schedule so we can get that. Um, And once we get the theme, then we start lining up courses and classes um, but it's you know definitely going to you know we'll open up state uh, out, outreach state coordinators positions to um, to come in soon. Um, we'll start taking applications for that until February, the end of February, um, and then you know we'll start. We've already got applicant. We don't even have the information up yet, and we already have three people that have um, you know already reserved a spot for the conference. So. You know, we're Excellent. getting attendee applications <laughs> off, and we don't even have information up yet. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm very excited about that. I think, you know, we've got, we'll always have a very powerful Victims Hour. You know, we have the National Candlelight Vigil during that time. You know, we have a fun night on Friday night. We're trying to do something a little different this year, but I don't know, again, with the hurricane now that our plans were kind of uh, something. So we're still looking at that. But, you know, we'll have great instructors, and it's just a, you know, four-day event or three-and-a-half. It starts on Thursday um, with training. I'm sorry, my dogs are going to start now. With training on uh, Friday and Saturday all day, and then, you know, Sunday ends at 1 o'clock. Um, you know, gives time for people to still travel home and what have you. But we'll be, uh, we'll be releasing more information in the next couple weeks to come as far as different instructors. Um, but we're excited. It's going to be March 21st. Um, that's our state outreach coordinator it's Thursday. And then Thursday night is when everybody starts arriving. And then um, it's going to be through the 24th and it ends at 1 o'clock. And it'll be here in Wilmington at the Holiday Inn uh, Suites and Conference Center. And uh, they take care of us every year greatly. We pretty much take over the entire hotel. And uh, we're just looking forward you know, to meeting, unfortunately, meeting a lot of new families that will have missing people. But it also is a safe place for a lot of the victims to come back and it's almost like a reunion for a lot of these families. And um, you'll be just hearing a lot of stories and be educated and make a friend, um, if not many friends and um, gain more of a support system, you know, get your loved one out there. Um, You know, it's just, it's really a great, you know, few days of coming together and and empowering people. It is. It's it's one of the best things I look forward to every year. I think I've been, I think this will be my, seventh or eighth year and i'm so blessed to to have you in the queue monica um i just wondered um for those who are wondering in that area where we usually meet in wilmington at the holiday inn and going down to the river what's the what's what what has been the impact of uh, hurricane florence to date is that is that still i think we're okay they've uh, we've been we've had amazing resources come into the area immediately when this hurricane hit a couple weeks ago um and i mean it's almost back to normal i mean you still see a lot of you know work crews um you know repairing major lines and stuff but you know everybody has power they're just out there you know doing a lot of repairs and stuff you still got you know some people near the river and stuff that you know are enduring flooding and and you know we have national resources in here feeding them and and trying to take care of them and whatnot and uh 
you know, people are definitely in the recovery mode and, and cleaning, um, you know, rebuilding. And, and it's, it's going to be a long process. But as far as the roads, they're being repaired. I see that every day. Um, and the river has gone down in our area. So, you know, things have dried out and, and people are, you know, fixing things and whatnot. So, I mean, probably in, in another month or so, it's going to look like, you know, nothing really major ever happened here. They've already got crews out picking up all the debris. I saw that yesterday, these huge semi-trucks that are just going around picking up. Uh, they have the tops open and they have these big arms and they're just picking up all the, the major debris that's all alongside the roads and stuff. So, you know, Wilmington is an excellent community to be a part of. Everybody takes care of their own and we appreciate all the extra resources that have come in here, but it just makes it that much quicker because, you know, I mean, immediately people are out cleaning up their yards and, and trying to get life back on track and, Unfortunately, a lot more people have way more damage, and, and it'll take longer. But, you know, we're a strong community, and, and we will take care of our own as well. So I am very confident by March, which is months away, that it'll look like nothing ever happened to our beautiful town. And you'll see a lot of new paint and a lot of new electrical <laughs> lines and a lot, probably a lot of new trees. <laughs> so, so. Oh, that's, that's great. Was, well, I also want to do a shout-out to your uh, to the president of Q, James Han, because he's doing – a yeoman's job for all of the work that you're doing with recovery and in every manner, tree removal, uh, bringing charcoal to churches I've seen online. And he, he's just a tremendous guy with all the help. I mean, everybody, it's, it, it, just, it just lifts my heart that everybody's doing so much good. Um, this, oh, yeah. Before we, yeah. Before we end, I wanted to ask you if you, you could just give a little general information if people are listening and they do want to make a report to the queue with regard to a missing person and also contact information for people to send donations or if they're interested in applying for a volunteer position, Monica. Okay. Well, our email is 24 hours a day. It's center at AOL.com. That's C-U-E-C-E-N-T-E-R at AOL.com. Real simple, Q-Center at AOL.com. And then our website is www.nc, like National Center, NC, missingpersons, with an S, dot org. And uh, you can go on there. Um, there's tabs to volunteer, get involved. You can also email us from that website. So that's www.ncmissingpersons.org. Um, and you can call our 24-hour line is 910-232-1687. Additional line is 910-343-1131. Or you can fax us a request at 910-399-6137. There's many ways to get in touch with us. And, uh, you know, we have Facebook. Uh, we have social media, different accounts. You know, just uh, reach out to us and get whatever information that is needed. Um, but, you know, if you want to become a state director, if you want to know more about it, um, you want to be a part of the conference this year, you know, whatever it is, um, you want to be a speaker or you train in a topic that maybe you might be interested in, you know, whatever the, the reason is. Um, but we're always looking for, you know, anyone that's interested in, in contributing to the cause and, um, you know, and there's always a way to reach us. There's no, no way you can't find you know, community united effort anywhere online, um, Houston for missing persons, there's just no way. So we look yeah. forward to hearing from everybody and I definitely appreciate you guys, you know, getting the message out, you know, week after week and and uh, you know, and all your, you know, internet projects of getting messages out there and helping families. It, it definitely uh you know, definitely helps involved and, and that's really what it's all about, you know, it's just people helping people. Absolutely. Well, thank you. It's it's a it's a pleasure to be able to help you and and honored to know you. Um, just wanted to say next year's twenty five, Monica. So maybe that's going to be know. a special one, right? Yeah, I, I think so. I think we're gonna um, maybe try to do something at the mall and, and invite everybody in. Um, I'm not sure yet. I've got a lot of different ideas, but we did that celebration of um, where uh, on our twenty year anniversary where you know, different companies and people made cakes and, uh, and we did a cake judging contest. We did a, um, cupcake, you know, decorating for kids for free. We did all kinds of different free stuff and promoted the safe and sound book. And I, I'm, I'm thinking we'll probably do something like that again, since I love cakes so much. Um, <laughs> I think it's always important <laughs> to yeah. celebrate with a birthday cake. So with you being 25 years old next year, I'm hoping to, uh, you know, really do some kind of a huge big birthday party in the public that everybody can come to and 
you know, and see what we can do to just continue to educate people, let them know we're still here. Well, that would be great. Very, very good. Cake and um, fireworks. Delilah, any, go ahead. Yeah, fireworks. Yeah, fireworks <laughs> on the beach. Anyway, yes. so Delilah, any parting words before we have to sign off? I think this has been a wonderful hour, and Monica has given oh, us a lot absolutely. of insight and information. Well, you know, okay. I can't, I can't stress the fact enough that this is an organization that is boots on the ground, doing something, and always doing something. It's not something that we just go out and do for a half an hour a day or something. It's it's all the time. There's always someone available. If you need it, we're here. So I, I just can't stress that enough. And I'm I'm very proud to be part of this organization. I'm very proud to call Monica my friend. Yes, well, me too. Thank you. I appreciate that. And and it is about having an extended family. I think that, you know, Q is like no other organization, and I don't say that just because, you know, um, it's an organization I founded. But I remember a, a wise woman telling me years and years ago that you're not a true founder until you shut off the light and someone else walks in and turns it on. And I have definitely accomplished that. So if I've accomplished nothing else, I know that there's many people that are deeper into the cause and that, that you know, will always help families and um and that just be involved in the mission in itself. And we just have to keep fighting for victims' rights. And that, you know, from all the way with document abuse, you know, to, to whatever we have to do to get out there and get that message across. And, you know, and I hope that this year um, is going to bring a lot of, of people to do just that. And, uh, again, thank you guys for having us. And I hope to hear from whoever, you know, wants to get involved. And if you're a family that's needing help, you know, you'll take a look at it. We'll help you. There's always... You know, if you if there's a will, there's always a way, and I believe in that. So, you know, get get with us, and we'll we'll go over it. Okay. Well, um, be sure to pass on this podcast, everyone, so that we can get the information out to everyone. Thank you again, Monica. Have a great weekend. We'll see you online, and we'll see you at the conference. Thank you, Delilah. All right. Thanks, guys. Okay. Bye. Have a good weekend, everyone. This is the next episode of Shattered Lives Radio, part of Inside One. Network.